So a lesson I learned early on, maybe through sports that applied to sales, was this concept of knowing versus doing. And I remember reading this book on basketball that was kind of interesting. And a big point of that, and I was reading through it with my dad, it was in high school, was this concept that, hey, you probably know what you should be doing. You're probably just not doing it. And this is a really interesting take to me because uh, who I'm about to talk to today, uh, Jeff Bajoric, uh, he's been talking a lot on his podcast about what it takes to be a top performer. And I, and I think that this is a really, really big piece of that. So before we get to it, though, my name is Jason Bay. Welcome to Blissful Prospecting. In this podcast, I have conversations with top reps, sales leaders, and other experts to teach you how to turn complete strangers into paying customers. So today we're going to talk about what it takes to be a top performer with my good friend, Jeff Bajoric, who is an advisor and sales coach at Parabola Consulting. Jeff, good to jam with you, man. Man, always. It's been too long since we've done this. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So this concept of top performers, have you... Like when you were growing up, did you have an obsession at all, whether it was sports or anything like studying people that were really, really good at their craft? Where does that curiosity come from for you? Wow. I love where you went with that. No, not when I was growing up, but I was always taught that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Mm -hmm. And I always recognized, I didn't study it. I I didn't have this fascination and I just was, you know, diving into it or anything, but the, um, it was always really prevalent when someone did something really, really well. And then as you get older, I mean, you know, and I think about athletes and baseball and basketball, I followed all the sports living in a four sports city here in Detroit. Um, you notice when you see greatness, but it's not until you get older that you start to recognize the nuance, right? Yeah. So you can see when someone's hitting 350, you know, a professional baseball player hitting 350, like, you know, that's great. You you hear the buzz around it, but it's not until you do something for a while that you start to pick up on that nuance and that subtlety. And it wasn't until um, I got further into my professional career where I noticed some of the things, just some of the little tricks and, and and not even tricks because I don't like to prescribe tricks, but you just you see someone who has such mastery over what they do that they can appreciate things, they can recognize things, they put in these little flourishes just because they can, and it just you you see what is created as a result of that, and it's fun. Yeah, I'm curious in your sales journey, when did you first start to think about sales as a skill? versus just something that you do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because a lot of people do the act of quote unquote selling, but there isn't really any kind of constant improvement, you know, type of motion that people go through, you know? When did you first start to think of it like a skill if that was something that you thought about early on? Right away, actually, because I wasn't very good really? at it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, I, I, and I've told the story before, but I was really convinced that I could sell. I didn't want to, but it was an opportunity. It's kind of cool. I was curious. I was interested. This guy thought I could do it. He's willing to pay me some money to do it. And you know what? And and I literally told myself, I said, Jeff, try for a year. If you don't like it, go back to doing what you were doing before. You're good at it. 
And I never intended to leave, but this seemed like a really cool little detour. And so I remember being frustrated by how, how poor I was at it because I'm a talented guy. I'm smart. I did tell me what to do. I'll do it. And, and I had this, um, interesting conversation with the guy that hired me. I was doing it for about six months and I just came in kind of mid-year review or midway review really. I started in August and he said, um, I said, yeah, I'm just frustrated. I feel like I should be better at this. And he said, okay, that's fair, but you've only been doing it for six months. And I said, yeah, that's six months. He says, Jeff, you got your degree in sports medicine. You became an athletic trainer, worked at a hospital. I said, yeah. He said, how long did it take you to get your degree? He said, four years. He said, and then you took a certification exam. I said, yep. And then how did you feel? He said, I felt like I could do it. But he's like, okay, in the three years since you got certified, how much better are you? I said, yeah, I mean, I feel like I still have more to learn, but I'm pretty good. And he said, okay, that's seven years of practice. You think you can master selling in six months? I said, okay, fair. Touche, right? Here I am looking yeah. at a guy who's a career salesman, done very, very well for himself. But like, what did that reflect of my impression on him, right? And um, so I, I kind of, I was humbled in the moment uh, quite appropriately. But I started then to pay attention. And, and that was the first time I gave myself enough leash to say, well, all right, maybe this isn't something you just master in a day. But then I, I, I went on sales calls with him and I saw him do things so casually and effortlessly and uh, successfully. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? And um, that's where I knew that, that actually put things in more perspective for me. I was like, I've got a long way to go, but um, let's lean into this. Let me know what you think, but I kind of feel like if you're good at selling in the first six to 12 months on the job, that really the thing you're good at is probably following a really good system. If your company taught you like a really good sales system, you probably are unconsciously competent and not unconsciously competent in a way that's mastery. <laughs> like I'm really good. I don't have to think about it. Um, you're really good. And you don't think about it, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you're just following like, this was what my sales career was like my first sales job. I fucking crushed it. But I actually didn't know why some of the stuff worked. And I look back now and yeah. I'm like, I didn't understand actually how to sit and have empathy for someone. You know what I mean? I didn't really actually understand that. I I just had really good sales training and systems. And it was dialed down to a T. I was selling house painting services. It was like, you're going to be there for an hour and 45 minutes. So you have 15 minutes to drive to the next house. We're going to stack five of those on a Saturday, five of those on a Sunday. And we're literally in 15 minute blocks. Here's what that hour 45 is going to look like to a T. You know yeah. what I mean? You're going to build rapport. You're going to do this. You're going to fish for you know some objections that you think might be coming up and get them out in advance so you can prevent them. And then you're, like it was dialed in. And I just followed that system because they've been doing that for 30 years. Right. You know, what, what do you think of that though? I, I love where you're going with this because there's a difference between selling a lot of things and knowing how to sell. Yeah. And just because you sold a lot of things and there's nothing wrong, by the way, with selling a lot of things. Like if you are fulfilled mm -hmm. by just, you know, uh, closing deals and selling transactional engagements or products or solutions or services, like you were talking about with house painting, like, Hey, right on. There's, that's very noble. There's nothing wrong with that. What I always sought was to understand why stuff worked though. Cause that's kind of where my yeah. brain goes. I'm kind of engineering minded. I, I like figuring out how things work because then if something breaks, I can fix it. And what I 
when I first really learned how to, um, or, or when I first started getting real training and real coaching and real mentoring, um, uh, in sale or in sales or in selling, I had someone to have those conversations with like, why do you think that works? What is going yeah. on? What's really going on? And that developed a deeper understanding, which led to a, a certain amount of mastery. And I, I say that because there's some, like, you'll never actually fully master selling. It's one of the greatest things about it is that you can come so close to perfection and then something changes or another variable is added or whatever, and you have to continue to explore. And I've always prided myself on knowing how to sell and knowing what selling means, not just being able to make sales and yeah, just you know, appreciating the difference there. And I think one of the problems, particularly with a lot of startups and companies that want to get off the ground fast is they expect their systems to be so perfect that people can just settle in and sell and, and make revenue. And that's a lofty goal. It's worthwhile. Um, but you're shortchanging the long-term potential of your, uh, of your, uh, organization. If you're not helping people understand why things work. And the real interesting thing is you can only prepare for so many variables and so many objections and you can, you know, kind of 80, 20 rule the whole thing. Like we know most of the time we get these objections and in the odd time where we don't get these objections or we're not ready for that. Well, okay, I guess this one's just going to drop out and we're going to go find another one. You can make up for those inefficiencies with volume. Um, but I just, I'm so fascinated by sales, how they happen, how they're created, how they're completed how they're fulfilled like to me that's the the best part and why i love what i do is that i'm i'm a geek for this stuff too so yeah yeah there's a huge difference between closing transactions and knowing how to sell and i just think when yeah. you know how to sell it everything else is just so much more fun yeah and you can apply it through so many different contexts oh. too you know i went from selling house painting services to selling agency services to selling done for you services to selling consulting to now selling training and coaching to companies and then adapting that to sell to individuals. You know what I mean? You have that context when you have the understanding of it, you know? Um, yeah, and you can, you can pick it up, move from industry to industry. You can move yep. from company to company. You put me in a room with any salesman or saleswoman for that matter, any seller, you put me in a room with them. We can talk. Yep. I don't care if they sell stuff I've never seen before. We can talk. <laughs> yeah. Because and, yeah. and we have the same problems too, by the way. We have the yeah. same issues that we run into. We have the same strategies for, or similar strategies for overcoming them. And, you know, there's, it's whether or not they're even well-read. I'm not saying, oh, have you picked up Anthony and Reno's book or Mike Weinberg's book or whatever? It's, it's not even about that stuff. It's that we speak a common language when you speak the language of selling. It's, it's yeah. universal. I can't imagine what it was like before there were many best practices, you know, could you imagine in America, let's say when commerce first became a thing and there were people actually selling stuff, not a business owner selling their stuff, but actual, a salesperson, someone was hired to sell something. Mm -hmm. Think about what it would be like figuring that out from scratch. <laughs> you know what I mean? You talked about objections and it's like, Hey, we know there's maybe four or five categories of like the types of objections that we might want to anticipate and prevent and Imagine just starting from scratch, dude, <laughs> just yeah. having to figure it out. It's kind of crazy to think about. I, I don't know how difficult it would have been though, because like 
we've talked about this before uh, off the podcast, yeah. but selling's not that complicated. Yeah. You hear the same objection a couple of times, even before you coin it as an objection. It's like, oh, it's either A, oh, good point. Never really considered that before. Uh, sorry to bother you. I'm going to go away now, right? I mean, that that that's one logical explanation. Or it could be, you know, I thought you might think of that. So I thought of it too. Like with someone who's motivated by purpose, wants to do good, has a solution they believe can actually help somebody, just because you haven't heard the objection doesn't mean that it's impossible to address. And I think rationally speaking, people with one another, um, you know, I think that's a really simple conversation. If you give, if each person in the conversation gives the other the room to participate in that conversation. I think when objections really become an issue is when we put a lot of unnecessary emotion into it and we're anxious about getting a potential objection and we're trying to make sure that we're prepared and we've got all this ego tied up and how we're going to look if we don't handle it the right way. But what if we don't handle it at all? And, you know, we're projecting all of this stuff on our prospect as well. It's like, you know, when, when sales as a profession first started, it was really uh, just about meaningful, logical conversations. Yeah. And our friend, our, our friend uh, Todd Capone does a lot of research and, and digs into the history of this. And, you know, he talks about how it was such a noble profession a hundred odd years ago and, and one that was vital and important and respected. And when, when people are respected in that way, those conversations aren't contentious typically. Either one, the prospect gives you the respect that you're due, so they'll actually listen to you. And since that person is respected, since the seller is respected and doesn't want to disrespect their prospect, they're not going to come off as pretentious and overbearing and manipulative and all the things that we're afraid of. We have so many negative emotions tied up in selling that I think we project a lot of our own difficulties. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. The history, my only deal with the history is that, dude, these sellers didn't have to deal with the types of buyers that we have to deal with now. They are not; they weren't as educated. Sure. When, when I need a salesperson to educate me on something, I mean, that's the whole, that's why it's so commoditized now. You know, yeah. like, I don't need to talk to a salesperson unless I'm buying an enterprise software. Like, I can, any product that I'd want to buy for my business, I can buy it without talking to someone if I wanted to. I could say, hey, I just want to buy this. I don't want to talk to you. You're like, okay. Like, I don't need them to educate me. You know what I mean? That's the thing I feel like a lot of the, yeah, God, I can't remember where, maybe it was Todd that was talking about this, but I think IBM kind of fucked it up quite a bit for a lot of, a lot of salespeople. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And look, I'm not saying, I'm certainly not going to argue with you that the situation is different and that, you know, in a lot of ways it's broken. Yeah. Yeah. That is for sure, because you're talking about unnecessarily scaling things quickly, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of things like that. And that's where a lot of issues get forced. And that's where a lot of bad habits yeah. start. Like, listen, our, our profession, as much as you and I love it, has some issues. Yeah. Full stop. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and you can buy things for your business because you don't need a full enterprise solution, at least where it is right yeah. now. Like, um, and I'm in the same boat. But I want that help. I want that insight. I want to know I'm making the right decision. I want to talk to people who have been where I haven't and who have seen the potential yeah. roadblocks. Let me issues. ask you this though. Sorry yeah. for interrupting you. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Let me ask you. Like, <laughs> how many 
And this place is this question is because we're about to talk about top performers and what these people do differently. You know, this place, this question is coming from a place of just really kind of confusion almost. Mm -hmm. Dude, how many salespeople have you interacted with, with your business that you actually enjoyed the conversation? Like literally how many have you had in the history of your business? Not enough. It's never enough. But Um, could you count it on one hand? No, it would take me more than that. Two hands? I'm, I might have to go to another pro- – I'm at least two hands and probably two feet. The, the second the, – the tenth toe might be, might be uh, debatable. Of salespeople there. you talk to where you feel like, oh, I learned something from this interact. Like yeah. I'm glad I – really – yeah. For me, it's I like mean, as far as people, people I've worked with, are you talk, okay, now you're talking about people I've worked no, no, with no. Like clients or are you talking about people trying people to sell selling me stuff? To you. Oh, people selling to yeah. you. No, there's, there's a tremendous uh, potential and opportunity out there for anybody who wants to raise their game. Like, yeah. and I'll go back to, I'll go back to this. Um, and, and you've worked with a, a ton of great reps too. I mean, you've had them on this podcast and, and, and oh, yeah. Squad, I've worked, you've worked with, with some real dozens. Killers, yeah. Right? I, yeah. I know okay. over a hundred really reps that if I was building a sales team, these would be the first yeah. people I would choose. I'm talking about people who have sold to you. And I get that we're not oh, yeah. executives at really large companies. We're not getting the, the best of the enterprise sellers selling to us. So I'm not trying to inflate our egos or anything, but like I'm trying to just illustrate the opportunity that there is so for people summer, to differentiate them. It's crazy. Yeah. Summer 2005. I'm sitting in a bar in East Lansing after a training session and I'm with um, my manager and uh, the regional sales manager who we kind of reported to. We were distributor reps, kind of manufacturers reps representing this company. And so we're having lunch after, um, after training session and I'm new, right? And I'm green. And, uh, this guy, he looks at me and he says, Jeff, you're going to do really well. You stay focused, stay organized. He's like, I'm going to tell you, there is a startling amount of mediocrity out there that looks a lot like success. It's not that hard to rise just above it. Stay focused, stay diligent, do the right things, study hard, do the work. You're, you're going to be amazing. Like, don't trick yourself into believing that it's hard or certainly harder than it really is to be really good at this because it doesn't take the, the bar's not set that high, Jeff. And I think about that at least once a quarter when I'm reminded, sometimes it's to kick my own ass and, and to remind myself that, uh, Hey, you know what, Jeff, maybe 80% of you is still better than 95% of the people that are out there. Just do better tomorrow. Um, but, or, or when I, see some other people or when I have to have this conversation with someone else that I mentor or that I talk to, who's just getting into this. I'm like, don't be intimidated by what success looks like. The, the blocking and tackling is where it's at, you know? And I mean, we're 17 years later. Um, it's still true. Here we are. And, um, I, I don't think it'll ever be proven wrong. Yeah. A friend of the, uh, the show, Bilal Batrava, he, what he always says is you're graded on a curve. And the good thing like is that, that uh, in sales, it's it's pretty easy to differentiate yourself. It really is, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, I think one of the biggest like privileges I feel like people like us have is the work we do is we get to work with some awesome sales reps, dude. Like yeah. some freaking studs, oh, yeah. you know, some really good men and women that just crush it. So what are some of those patterns that you see in the people that do extremely well at the companies that you work with? What are some of those 
habits of these top performers? You know, I think first and foremost, they're proud to be in sales. Yeah. Like all this apologizing for being in sales. And I heard you on a, on an episode recently, you're kind of breaking down some emails. I think Will Allred was on with you and you were breaking down an email and the first line was, sorry to bother you. I'm like, right away, I'm talking to myself. I'm like, don't apologize for being in sales. Don't apologize for being in sales. Don't apologize for being in sales. Like it just, it's, you're here to help people, period. And they picked up the phone, right? Like if they, if you're calling, which you should do, if they're, if you're calling and they picked up the phone, they participated in the interruption, right? If they're reading the email, they're participating in the interruption. Don't apologize for that. But they're proud to be in sales. They're purpose-driven, right? They have an alignment between who they are, what they do, how they serve. They, they know their why, right? Um, they treat selling as a career, not just as a job. They, they appreciate the long term. They appreciate that this is a step in the process. No step is too small. So long as you're headed in the right direction, you keep taking steps, right? Think about the long play and, and play the long game. Um, they take ownership of their outcomes. And they don't, you know, get distracted by silos. And, you know, if you're an SDR and things didn't convert, then that's the AE's fault. If you're an AE and you don't have enough leads, it's the SDR's fault. It's always marketing's fault. Like, what? hold on, I have a number to deliver. I'm going to do what I need to do to deliver that number, right? Um, I like to think that they begin with the end in mind, or I say it this way, they begin with the end in mind, that they understand what needs to be done, not just what to do. And this gets back to what we were talking about before. Like, just because you've made a lot of sales doesn't mean that you know how to sell. And do you understand the bigger concepts? Do you understand what needs to happen in this sales call? Or are you relying on the script that someone else wrote for you? Right. Um, I was just talking about this on a webinar earlier today. They don't, top performers don't just sell. They create an environment to buy, you know, which to me means that they get emotional early on. They engage emotions very early on. They're very curious, particularly in discovery, which means they're willing to be wrong. They don't go on their own assumptions and they get vulnerable enough to allow their prospects to get vulnerable with them, right? That, that creates this level of comfort and, and partnership that your uh, prospects need to feel in order to move forward with you. And, th you know, the way I kind of end all the lists like this um, is th they keep their swagger. They have a mindset about them that allows them to keep moving forward. They don't get too high with the highs. They don't get too low with the lows. I didn't know what that meant until about five years into my career. Um, and they find a way to put themselves in a mental position that allows them to succeed. All of this comes down to them seeing a bigger picture. Top performers see a bigger picture than, than anybody else. Um, they just, they see not, sometimes they even see kind of the lines of code in the matrix, right? But in general, they just have a larger purview. They have a wider scope and they have much more patience. They have a much more stable um, emotions and they see the good in, in things much more often than mediocre salespeople do. Those, those are what I call the, the seven intangible traits or the seven intangible characteristics of top sellers. So let's definitely dig into those. I, uh, I interviewed, it hasn't gone live yet, but I interviewed Henry Sheck. He's the CEO of ZoomInfo. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, I said, when you're a prospect, like when you hop on a sales call and you're the prospect, which 
you know, Zimmonf is a publicly traded company, pretty big software company, right? If he's hopping on a sales call as a prospect, it's a really big deal that they're trying to work, right? That that salesperson's trying to work or that team. And I asked him, what did you want to take away from a call if you're going to hop on it? And what feels like an absolute waste of your time? What do you think he said? Oh, am I going to learn something? Yep. It's exactly what he said. He said, he, he used this phrase, best in class. Hmm. He said, I want to know what the best in class looks like that's using your solution. So if you're trying to sell me XYZ product or service or whatever, tell me about how a company is using this right now in a best in class, world-class way. I want to be able to get from step A to D. I don't want to have to go through B and C. Yeah. And what that made me think of is he, he's got this mindset and this approach around being world-class. And everything that you said just now, if I had to sum that up, it would be like raising your fucking expectations of yourself and yeah. expecting excellence, demanding excellence from yourself. You know what I mean? There's yeah. something, I don't even know how to describe it. It's an intangible thing that you see in really high-level athletes musicians, actors, whatever it might be. And I see it in my best clients too, where they don't accept mediocre effort. The things that they can control, they, they don't accept showing up to a sales call and prepared. They don't accept asking shitty questions to the prospect. They don't accept doing a demo with someone and not engaging the prospect and them not feeling like they're, they just don't accept that. You know? Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, it, it gets, to, it touches on the nuance that we talked about before, mm. right? And and it's funny because, you know, season two of the Rethink the Way You Sell podcast is about top performers and what makes them different. And what I've noticed about top performers at the top of the top is that doesn't have anything to do with additional closing skills or selling skills or, you know, I mean, even, you know, organizational skills. We talk, we, you know, we, we, I, I touch on that a little bit, but it's not these tangible things that, oh, I just need to go read a book on that or, oh, I need to practice this more, right? I mean, certainly there's an element of practice that's important, but in, and you, there's certainly a, a level of knowledge that's important. But most people, most salespeople know enough to be successful, know enough to be quite dangerous in their in their fields, but they're not doing it because they're holding themselves back in one way or another. And so what I wanted to show people was that when you look at what really moves the needle, it's execution. And then if you really want to cut it fine and, and, you know, uh, polish some, some of the areas there where you can really get better, it's, it's about your mindset. It's about your standards. It's about your boundaries. It's about what, you know, I've mentioned the blocking and tackling, like it's mentioned all the time. Like, do you accept anything less than your best. Yeah. And and do you put yourself in position to deliver your best all the time? And, you know, someone who thinks they're better than they are will show up and haphazardly perform unprepared and say, ah, I got it. It's not that big of a deal. I'm good at this. I can, I can wing it. Well, it's just another sales call. What is the CEO going to show up? Come on, whatever. And then all of a sudden the CEO shows up and they shit themselves because they're not ready. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You've seen this and, <laughs> yeah. and it's like, uh, and then they lose a big opportunity. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the very best salespeople realize that they can't win them all because there are things that are going to happen outside of anybody's control 
that will either put them in a position unfairly to fail or sometimes unfairly to succeed. Okay. At the end of the day, it all evens out. Don't worry about it. Just go back to work, do the job. And, um, you know, it's the, the best performers that, that I have ever worked with or observed have these routines that they stay in. Um, not because they're overly prescribed, right. But just because like, this is what I know that it takes for me to do my best work. So I'm going to put myself to in position to do my very best work every day. That's all anybody can ask for. And they make sure they deliver that. What are some of the routines that you've heard or seen folks do either morning routine or, you know, routines before they get into a prospecting block or routine they go through maybe to prepare for a sales call? What kind of stuff have you seen? I mean, I've seen all kinds of things. And I mean, I've had several of my own. Um, I don't have a very prescriptive morning routine myself. I mean, I, I like to spend it quietly. Typically, I don't always read. Sometimes I do. I don't always meditate. Sometimes I do. I don't always drink coffee. Sometimes I do. Um, but that would be that's the one must for me every morning. The coffee part. (laughs) 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 Gotta have the coffee, dude. (laughs) Um, I really enjoy a good cup of coffee. What I what I what I've found though is that if I don't have time to actually sit and enjoy it, it's just kind of a waste. It's like yeah, I, I don't I don't drink beers while I um you know type up my weekly you know, newsletter either anymore, because I was just like, man, I just drink two beers and not even recognize it. Like what a waste. Right. So, um, but anyway, I've seen people, I think the most important routine though, when you, I was going to just say something about prospecting blocks is that you set aside the time to do the things that need to be done, which I think is a routine in itself. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I, I know people that on Sunday night for 30 minutes, they look at their week and they just say, okay, where's my activity going to come from? What does the calendar look like already? What's the hand I've, I've dealt myself, which is what the calendar is. Where do I need to amend it? What needs to happen? Okay, great. Where does that fit into the overall plan? I've talked to some people who are like, nope, on weekends, I don't do it. I'll wake up half an hour early on Monday morning and do that. Okay. Yeah, that, that works. I know some people who do it on Friday, but you know, the routines, I think the common denominator of the routines is they always focus around the most important activities. You can be proactive when you plan, but you know, as well as I do, and if you don't have boundaries around the, the, the time blocks, you know, I like to say, if your calendar couldn't be used as evidence in a court of law to, you know, to, uh, convict you of being in sales, then you're doing it wrong. Right? Where are your prospecting uh, blocks? Where are the meetings? If you can't prospect because you have so many uh, meetings with clients, where are they? Are they on your calendar already? Like, if you're going to have three sales calls a day, you know, for the next two weeks, then hey, great. Then maybe you can make the argument that you don't need to prospect anymore, um, and you have a bunch of prep to do. All right. But you and I both know that you get into the flow of your day, and then all of a sudden, it hits the fan. And now you've got to respond to this and a customer called and then you're working from home and the Wi-Fi went down. So you got to troubleshoot that and get on the phone with your service provider. And, you know, like it can go sideways quickly. So if you don't make sure that there is time set aside and most importantly, hold yourself accountable to, to actually keeping those boundaries up, the work isn't going to get done. So I, I think the, the routines vary in terms of personal preference. And, you know, I don't know, some people like to listen to heavy metal music before they 
you know, or, uh, or, uh, something really intense and, and heavy before they, they call so that they can get all fired up. That's great. Some people like to listen to classical music cause it calms them down and puts them in a Zen like state. Um, you know, it, that part doesn't matter, but the routines to me are all about the mindset and, and what kind of a mindset are you putting yourself into, uh, in order to execute effectively. And yeah, first, first step is recognizing that you need to do something. Yeah. I, routines are so important. It, it, we have these like patterns that we get into where sometimes you just need to interrupt that pattern a bit and it could be shifting your routine a bit. You know what I mean? Like an example of what I'm talking about is if you take the icons on your phone, on your iPhone, and you take the icon that's in the bottom right on your screen and push it to the upper left and it shifts every icon over one, it just fucks with you. The next time you open your phone, you can't find what you're looking for. And what you find is that, hey, when I click on that social media app or whatever it is, it's not there. I have to be intentional about what I'm going to do when I open up my phone. And I think, you know, like you said, with the routine, having a routine, something that you do that cues a certain behavior. I was working with a guy, (laughs) you know, on holidays, because we're recording this right after Labor Day or sure. Memorial Day, excuse me. Um, the call blocks after holidays in our outbound squad program tend to be pretty bare, you know, on like a Tuesday when Monday was was Labor Day. So we had two people show up and the one of them we spent a lot of time with. But this guy, we were working with him on his cold calling. Mm-hmm. And that was the big kind of takeaway from it. It was just not only having him listen to himself talk and all this other stuff and talk about what to say, but we came up with, with a routine that he could go through when he's about to start his call block to get him in a better like mental state to where he's more excited to talk to people. And it was really simple, dude. It was like, you're not going to make any calls sitting down. You got to oh, stand up. Sure. <laughs> okay. And you got to stick yeah. your chest out and you got to smile. I want you to pretend like you're walking past uh, someone that you really want to date. What would your posture be, dude? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you look like? Right. What would you say? What would your level of energy be? If you were going to go and approach that person and talk to them, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, do that. We found out what his favorite song is. I want you to put that song on. And then I want you to do something physical. It could be 10 jumping jacks. It could be 10 burpees. It could be five pushups, whatever it is. Do do something. And then now you have this little thing that you're doing. You know, I think those routines are so important for stuff that's really hard. Yeah. For stuff that's really hard to get yourself to do, having something that warms you up and gets you going in that routine. No different than I love snowboarding, but dude, you don't just walk up to the top of the mountain and just go down. Like you do a couple warm up runs, dude. You know what I mean? Like before you yeah. do a heavy weightlifting session, you have a couple of sets or maybe you hit the stairmaster or the treadmill, like you warm up, you know what I mean? Right. Before you do this, like why wouldn't we treat sales the same exact way? Why wouldn't you have a warm up routine? Like five minutes, dude, of something that you know music, doing something physical, going outside, whatever it is, like something that works for you to get you in that routine. You know what I mean? Got to warm your brain up. That, I mean, that's why yeah. so many people rely on, on coffee or caffeine, really. You know, it's, it's like, you know, that stimulant, that's a jolt. It's, it's there. And, you know, my brain moves a lot faster when it's caffeinated. There's no question about that. Um, sometimes too quickly, you know, and I have a hard time keeping things straight, which is why I can't drink too much coffee anymore. Um, but the, cause I, I love coffee just as much as the next guy. Don't get me wrong here, but the, the um, you're, you're exactly right. Like, what are you doing to put yourself in the mindset? 
Right? That's why, you know, I, I do like to read or listen to a podcast or, or, or do something in the morning when I'm just, I'm trying to get warmed up and trying to get those synapses firing in a way that's coherent. And then I'll read something that'll make me think, and then I'll kind of go off sideways for a little bit. And I enjoy that. Um, what are you doing to focus your brain on what needs to happen? Right. And what's interesting is even about the, you know, 10 burpees before a cold calling block, like, okay, what, how do you connect burpees and cold calling? Well, um, when you do 10 burpees before you do that cold calling block, now, as soon as you start doing burpees, your mind is starting to get ready for what comes next. That's the value of it. And there is so much less friction in the task switching of moving from, you know, uh, down on the floor in a push-up position, you know, up to, you know, uh, now I'm on the phone walking with my chest out. I'll tell you what, the swole that you get from doing a few push-ups, you know, uh, yeah. prior, that doesn't help. It doesn't hurt your posture much either. Right. So, I mean, like there's even some ties that, that you can, uh, that you can put together there, but like, what are you doing to get ready and what feels normal when you're getting ready? And then what is the carryover from that? It's almost Pavlovian. I mean, it really is. Yeah, no, absolutely. What have you noticed in the reps that you've worked with the top reps around game film? like reviewing performance, do they record calls? Do they review calls? How do they coach themselves? What I notice more than anything, because I tend to work with people who are outside sellers or aren't always in a position where they can record their calls. Um, there's almost an immediate playback in their head. That's certainly yeah. how it is with me. And that started when I was riding with my mentor or riding with anybody, really, when people I mentored or um, just colleagues, when we'd co-travel together, um, I, I like to have um, people from marketing in the car with me sometimes. It was really great opportunity to build some relationships within the company and also show them what we were dealing with in the field. Um, and you know, we'd walk out of a call and it'd be like, how'd that go? Did you see what she did when you said this? Did you see what he did when I said this? Like that was one, how I learned. And two, um, like it just makes you be so much more self-aware. And what I learned throughout my career is when I thought about the postmortem after the, the call, I was much more present during the call. And sometimes I could even be assessing myself. And, and that happens a lot more now. Like I can tell if a call's going well, if a call's not going well, I pay so much more attention to responses. And then it's like, okay, how do I fix that? How do I, hmm, okay, that didn't, he didn't answer that the way I hoped he would. All right, we're going to have to take this in a different direction. When you've been, when you've had enough reps to go through that stuff, you start to pick up on your own patterns and you can not only prevent some of those things from going awry, but if they do happen to just go in the wrong direction for you, you're able to um, kind of right the ship. Um, so most of the reps that I see, it's, it's an immediate breakdown afterward. And I'll be the guy that talks to myself walking back to the car in the parking lot from a, a bad office call, or I'll be the guy that gets up from my desk after a call. And it's like, Oh my gosh, but all right. How did that go? That went really well. What could still go wrong? Or that didn't go as well as I could, thought it would, but Oh, you know what? No, let me remind myself what I know to be true. They still agreed to this. They still agreed to this. We have another meeting. Like there's, regardless of whether or not you're in a position to actually record your conversations, there's always a mental recording going on here. The black box is always active. And if you train yourself, 
to pay attention to those things, you're going to get a lot more feedback. You're going to be able to give yourself a lot more feedback and you're going to get better. Um, if you have the ability to go back, whether it's whatever software you're using, there are a bunch of them out there to record your Zoom calls and, and things like that. Um, it's excruciating to listen to yourself, particularly yeah. and play things back. Like it's really, really hard. That's why most people don't do it. But when you do it, it's tremendous. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the easiest or simplest example of this is, you know, the early days of the Why and the Buy podcast when I was our producer. And I listened to everything I said, and I listened to everything Christy said, and I picked up on all my ticks and all of hers, and it made me better. And then finally came a point where we just, you know, outsourced the production. That that made a lot of things better. But, you know, I still have that experience to lean back on and learn from because I actually listened to what I was saying, what I shouldn't have been saying, what I could have said better. And all of that mindset of continuous improvement, sharpening the saw. That's what top reps are focused on. You know, the bummer for me is when I work with a rep who's been doing this for a while, maybe they have five, 10 years, maybe a little less left and they're done. They don't really feel like they can learn anymore. It's not that they can't, it's that they don't want to. Yeah. Like that, that hurts my feelings, not just because I'm in a position to help them, but because it's like, man, are you that like, are you that unenthused? by what you do, yeah. that you're not interested in not just doing it better, but learning something that might make it more fun. Like, I mean, think about all the ways that we help people, Jason. It's not just about upskilling them. It's about having them make new connections, see new things and find new ways to put deals together. Like that's fun. That's problem solving. When, when I see someone who refuses to get better or practice solving problems, like it just, it hurts my feelings. I feel so bad for them. Like, wow, you must be miserable. You must really yeah. be miserable. Yeah, it's, it's, you're already doing the job. Why not get better results out of the time that you're already spending? That's, that's the part I don't really understand. That's why I love outbound squad so much is it's all those reps in that program. We're all about to cross a hundred. Um, mm. they want to be there when I work with a company, you know, 20% of that group doesn't really want to be there. It's just a job to them. 20 you know? on the low end sometimes um, too. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, uh so <laughs> You're being yeah. Kind. <laughs> yeah, we talked about best in class commitment, this debriefing, the routines. Last thing I want to touch on real quick is confidence. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned swagger and that sort of thing. There is so uh, Ethan, uh, one of our coaches here, he he talks about how he describes the confidence in the first 30, 60 seconds of the cold call. I thought was kind of interesting and it has to do with certainty versus uncertainty. Mm. You know, how certain does this person sound like that they're talking to the right person and that they have a good reason and, and that they can help them, you know, if the person is willing to be helped and is able to be helped. The yeah. Certainty, I thought was a really interesting way to describe that. How do you think about, you know, kind of confidence and how do we get our confidence to the next level? Cause doing this for me has been so big in the last year. And there's been a culmination of like a bunch of different things that, you know, sort of led to that. But how do you think about, you know, how a rep might think about leveling up their confidence? It's a fun story. Um, I guess it was eight years ago now. 
I went to Bandon Dunes to play golf for the first time on a golf trip with a bunch oh, of guys. My neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah. Love it out there. One of my favorite, like you can drop a pin on the fourth tee box at Pacific Dunes and it is literally one of the happiest places I've ever been in my entire life. Um, and I, we can tell that story another time. But I was there and the cool thing about the caddies there is that when you go with a group, all the same caddies are with your group. So they get to know you, they get to know your games. You may not have the same person every time, but I did in this case. And, you know, one of the first, you know, first couple of holes we go out, he's carrying my bag and I made a couple of putts, made a couple of putts that weren't gimmies. And he's like, oh, you can putt. And that was kind of the refrain the whole time. And he'd be lining me up and, you know, help me he'd read my putts for me sometimes and everything, just confirm him. And then he'd say, hit this one with conviction. You're a good putter. And with conviction stuck with me, which is the same thing as, as what Ethan's talking about with uh, certainty. And, you know, it, it, I became a better putter throughout the week because I had him one chirping in my ear, but two, I routinely matched the expectations, the higher expectations that he set for me simply because he believed I was going to make the putt, which made me believe that I was going to make the putt, which meant a lot more putts went in. And you know what? The ones that didn't, ah, yeah, I can't win them all. It, it, it completely like raised the ceiling on potential and also raised the floor on potential. Cause even when the ones didn't go right, it was like, ah, you know what? Hey, I hit a good putt. What are you going to do? Gust of wind, blade of grass, whatever it is, spike mark, you know, whatever stuff outside of my control. So when, as a rep, you do everything you can with conviction, with belief, with the understanding that you've done all the work necessary You've put yourself in the best possible position to succeed because of the training, because of the practice, because of your own standards, because you're setting the boundaries around the things that are most important. You really believe that you're in the best possible place to succeed. Now you just have to do your part with conviction. But do you believe that you're in that spot? Do you believe that you're capable if you don't believe you've done the work, if you don't believe you've got the boundaries, if you don't believe that you're putting yourself in the best position, well, then why not? And that's where a top performer, actually a top performer might be a little too hard on themselves, but that's where a top performer will look in the mirror and say, okay, where am I lacking? Have I really done everything I can do? And if I can, or if I have, then, hey, great. This is, it's going to be, it's time to, time to see how it all plays out. But if I haven't, then why not? And what am I going to do to put myself in that position if I haven't already? And that's where that confidence comes from. That's, that's where that certainty comes from. It's look, there's always something to work on, but am I being fair with myself right now? Am I remembering that there's a startling amount of mediocrity out there that disguises itself as success? Do I look at my peers? Do I look at the work that they're not doing? You know, and, and am I really following my own intuition as to what I believe is the best thing for me to do? Yeah. Okay. Once I'm in that spot, all right, man, it's time to go to work. We've done all the preparation. Now it's time to, you, you, you put in all the practice. Now it's time to pick up the phone. You put in the practice. It's time to walk in on that stage in front of 10,000 people and deliver a speech. You know, you, you, you put, the, you put all your practice time in. It's time to walk to the first tee and it's time to tee it up. It's time to 
hit those free throws to win the game. It's time to propose to, you know, your, your partner, right. You and I both had to do that. That, you know, it's, it's, Hey, showtime, right. Do you do that with conviction? If you do, then let it rip. If you don't, then look at why you can't be convicted in yourself and fix that. Maybe that takes a little help. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you just need someone to hold you accountable. You can tell them you're doing this thing. And when we talk next week, ask me if I did it. Oh, okay, cool. Right. Um, but ultimately, do you want it badly enough? Is your purpose in alignment with what you're, you're trying to do enough to where you will actually do those things? I don't know if that answers your question specifically. But no, that's, I love it. I think there's so much just to the internal belief, you know, and as a sales leader, one of the most powerful things that you can say to a sales rep is I believe in you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so powerful. And you as a rep need to be working for sales leadership that believes in you, you know, and that's a good question to ask your manager too. Hey, Hey, do you believe in me? And just hear if they have some hesitations too around stuff that you might need to work through and you know? the delivery, the delivery too. like, it's really easy. It's common parlance to just say, Oh, you got this. We say that all the time. Oh, you got yeah. this. If you're a manager, flip that around. Don't say, yep. Hey, you got this. Look your rep in the eye and say, I believe in you. Yep. You're going to make this happen. Let me know how it goes. Come back. Let's debrief. Right. But that very deliberate, I believe in you goes miles further than you got this. Yeah. Don't underestimate part of that. Yep. We got to take off, dude. This flew by, man. Where, uh, where can people go and check you out? You got a podcast, a bunch of stuff you're doing. Where can people go to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? I do. Thank you. Um, rethink the way you sell. Um, that's my new podcast. I am two seasons in the third season is all about prospecting. It's about my, um, you know, unique approach to prospecting. So I'm really excited to be working on that right now. And by the time this airs, it'll be really close. Um, or jeffbajorek.com. So if you're, you're already in a podcast player, just go search, rethink the way you sell, hit the subscribe button right after you subscribe to this one. And then, um, go to jeffbajorek.com. You can learn more about me there. And if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn's a great place too.